From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Today, understanding why homelessness has gotten worse across Metro Denver. Partly, it's that pandemic supports have faded away. Back in 2020, we started talking about it saying, you know, at some point, we're going to see the full economic impact. This is it. Also, understanding who needs help. We now have data that 87% of the people experiencing homelessness are from right here in Colorado. So we know they're from here. They are experiencing homelessness in the communities where they last had a permanent residence. They are from our community. We'll get beyond describing the problem and into solutions. What you can do in your neighborhood and how a successful approach to veteran homelessness might be applied more broadly. Later in the show, a Denver jazz institution finds a new home. You're used to monthly bills, monthly subscriptions, monthly fees, and you know paying for things over time makes the total cost more manageable. It's one reason most CPR donors give monthly, and it's also why many members are able to grow their support incrementally and make small adjustments that fit their budgets. If now is a good time to increase your monthly contribution by a few dollars, email membership at CPR.org. Thank you for your support. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. Homelessness is very visible this summer, with tents lined up along sidewalks. Meanwhile, figures are now out for an annual survey They show on one day last winter, many more people in Metro Denver were unhoused compared to the year before. The largest city in the area has officially declared homelessness an emergency. What can we do about it to help people get stable housing and to make it easier for everyone to get around on sidewalks? Jamie Reif leads the Metro Denver Homeless Initiative, which coordinates the area's response. And welcome to the program. Thanks for having me, Brian. When you think about the long view, has homelessness in Metro Denver become worse over the last five years or so? Absolutely, it has. Um, And that's really related to a bunch of factors, mostly the cost of housing. We're seeing the cost of housing rise exponentially, and we're seeing people just not be able to afford to live here more and more. Do you think the pandemic has something to do with it? A hundred percent. While the numbers this year were staggering, it wasn't something that was unexpected. We kind of expected this during the pandemic. However, we had a lot of protections and a lot of extra federal funding to prevent homelessness for a lot of households. And now that that funding has dried up and some of these protections have worn off, we're seeing the true economic impact of the pandemic. As that sort of federal support wanes, it's as if I don't know, like water is receding and you can see the devastation. Yeah, we've hit that cliff that we knew at some point would be coming. Back in 2020, we started talking about it saying, you know, at some point we're going to see the full economic impact. This is it. I want to make clear, we really are talking about the whole metro. So Adams, Arapaho, Boulder, Broomfield, Denver, Douglas, Jefferson counties. And the why is obviously really important here. So the high cost of housing. I know as well that you point to income inequality. What other contributors are going on here? Yeah, you really can't talk about homelessness in this country without talking about race. There are a lot of variables with data related to homelessness. That is the one that always remains constant, is the overrepresentation of Black, Indigenous, and people of color. 
And I think what we tend to do is look at homelessness in isolation without factoring in that it's really the outcome of several systemic failures that we see in this country. So criminal justice, education, healthcare, child welfare, all of these really, the outcomes lead to what we see as modern day homelessness. When it comes to the cost of housing, I wanna hammer this home with your own data. You put the average minimum wage in Metro Denver at a little over $13. The average wage that a renter pulls in is actually twice that But the wage needed to rent a two-bedroom apartment is significantly higher than either number, more than $32 an hour. So it's no wonder people can't afford housing. That's exactly right. We are seeing these increases that the wage is not keeping up with. Every year it's getting worse and worse and worse, particularly if you're a family in Metro Denver or if you are someone who's aging. That is one of the fastest growing populations we see in homelessness are people over the age of 55. When you describe the problem, as multifaceted as it is, it can feel overwhelming. There's only so much that service providers for those experiencing homelessness can take on themselves Right? I mean, yeah. you are not primarily a reformer <laughs> of criminal justice. No. You are not primarily a home builder. No. You are not primarily fighting for higher wages. So what can you do? Yeah, I think it's a couple of things. Number one, I really would encourage people to understand this issue. For every person you see staying outdoors, there are three people you don't see. And homelessness is an incredibly wide spectrum. It is everything from small children, families, elderly people. I was you know, speaking to a shelter provider, and they were sharing with me that not too long ago, for the first time, a 98-year-old woman had to come to shelter because she lost her home because she couldn't afford it. So there are people like that. There are people that just need a couple of months of rental subsidies to get back on their feet. And then there are the people that we tend to see experiencing homelessness. Mm. And those tend to be people that are chronically homeless. They have some sort of barrier that might be physical or some sort of other disability. And those are people that really need a much longer supportive housing situation. And when when they get that, it is the most proven effective model for making sure that someone remains stable. And when you look at, say, the woman in her 90s, when you look at people who need that kind of temporary help to stay on their feet, what does that tell you you can do? Yeah, I think, first of all, it's going to take all of us. And I think people see this issue and they look at it and they say, well, homelessness is the issue. Absolutely. Homelessness is the issue, but it's an outcome of other systems that are failing in this country. And we have to look upstream at those other systems. Well, but that that doesn't answer what you can do. (laughs) Oh, yeah. 110%. Yeah. So we talked about the problem. Let's talk about what we can do. First of all, we have to be open to building affordable housing. And, you know, one of the things I get asked a lot, Ryan, is, you know, by people that I know if I'm at anywhere and I tell people what I did. I told my yoga instructor yesterday what I did for a living and they immediately asked, well, what can I do? And what you can do is welcome affordable housing. You can welcome solutions to your community. You can understand the issue because we have a lot of resources to build, but what we need is people to be welcoming. You know, and we talk a lot about nimbyism or no in my backyard. What I'd like to see is yimbyism or yes in my backyard. Indeed, a lot of efforts to put up housing for those who can't afford it, whether it's tiny homes or some other kind of shelter, draw objections from the neighborhoods where they would go. And and this is hardly just a Metro Denver problem. The mayor of Colorado Springs spoke just recently about the need to get more people to see how housing the unhoused 
would help the whole community. So here's Yemi Mubulade. One of the biggest challenges that we begin to experience in my city is NIMBYism. That makes it hard where many of the neighborhoods are objecting to any kind of development. So we, as government leaders, have to think of new ways to begin to educate and begin to help our city see that these are real people that are affected by lack of housing. And it has great consequences and costs to our cities. We do not solve this. I want to be understanding of NIMBYism, too. In other words, there are people who are concerned about their neighborhoods. So let's meet their concerns head on. What do you hear and what is your message to them about impacts that they may see as affecting their quality of life? It's not just about building a huge affordable housing unit right in your backyard. I will tell you right now, today, we could decrease veteran homelessness by a third if we just had landlords who were willing to accept housing vouchers and veterans into their units. So this issue just isn't about let's build housing. Mm. It's about let's get people into existing units. People are in different places in the city. They have a voucher. They go live in a you know market rent unit. And that is one of the solutions. But there are a fair number of people saying no to vouchers. There are. It's really, really hard. Um, so, you know, when you have a unit, it's incredibly competitive here. Our vouchers don't necessarily keep up with market rent. And like landlords can pick and choose who they want to rent their units to. So we need landlords at the table who are willing to help us solve this issue in the private sector. I mean, are you essentially asking them, take less money for this property? Or I'm saying take confirmed money, because that's the thing. When you're a landlord and you accept a voucher, that means you have rent in hand every month on time, no matter what. Hmm. Like, it's a great value add. You never have to worry about rent. Okay, well, give me an example of NIMBYism. One more. Yeah, so I think a lot of people don't want affordable housing specifically in their communities. Here's what I'm going to say. There are parts of our community where affordable housing is for people making $80,000 a year. That's our teachers, our nurses, a lot of our public servants. So we need to be able to build that housing as well as people who are experiencing homelessness and have kind of these mixed-use, mixed-income properties. That's really what we want to do. Let's get explicit there. What misconception are you pushing back on there? Yeah, I think the misconception that, um, you know, communities are going to, like, see a lot their communities change. It's going to bring crime or it's going to bring other, you know, things to their community that just people are scared of. The reality is it doesn't. If you look at studies over and over and over, if you add affordable housing, it actually helps your community grow and flourish because people can afford to live there. Do you think that people have a kind of outdated view of what affordable housing is. Maybe they picture the Cabrini Greens and the Pruitt Igos. 110%. I think that's another thing I would encourage people to really look into is our affordable housing now looks like luxury units in a lot of cases. It is beautiful. It has playgrounds, childcare. Some of them even have like gardens and things like that on site. Like it is very, very different than it was when we really started down this road specifically with public housing. We have reporting from our own uh, folks at Denverite, our sister publication that supports this idea of crime not going up in connection with the placement of affordable housing. We met a woman living in a tent in Denver this winter who talked about not being able to find housing she can bring her son to. She says the transitional housing is not a condition she'd want him to live in. She's a college graduate who is employed has a nine-year-old who's staying with friends while she is living outside. The woman's name is Beth Davis. There's bugs and, 
you know, all of this. And I'm sorry, I just, I do have a, a standard and I shouldn't have to degrade that standard. I shouldn't have to. People want freedom to do basic things like live with who they want to, maybe control the temperature, be in an accessible location. So especially when it comes to that transitional housing, is it possible to offer people something that is respectful and respectable? Yeah, I think this is why we there's no like magic bullet or one size fits all for people experiencing homelessness and the solutions. I think it's really important. Here you have a mother of a nine-year-old. And I want everyone listening to stop and think how you would feel right now if the most important person in your life you couldn't be with simply because of your housing situation. Um, And that's also a reason why we see so many people staying outdoors and not in shelters. Our shelter providers do a great job. They work really hard. But sometimes people have to choose between their spouse, their children, their pets, or going to shelter. And so a lot of people choose to stay outdoors, and I don't blame them. And so is that a gap then? In transitional housing? Yeah, and I think when we talk about transitional housing, we want to be really talking about housing that is on the way to actual housing. Mm -hmm. So transitional housing should be just that. So when we're looking at tiny homes, safe outdoor spaces, anything like that, we want it to be a short point in time that is transitional until someone can be placed or has the resources to be in a safe, stable place to call home. And Chris, we know that tiny homes, perhaps scattered throughout the city, that's a central tenant of the new mayor in Denver's plan. And I I guess the question is like, what do you start a clock once someone moves into a tiny home (laughs) village? Because and and then what? You have to have the housing stock and the people to say yes in my backyard. Yeah, I think there's a couple of things that we can be doing. And I, I think this is encouraging about the mayor's current plan. So there's something called master leasing. So earlier I talked about the veterans that are experiencing homelessness right yeah. now have a voucher, don't have a unit. There are a lot of cities and a lot of regions around the U.S. What they do is they have a nonprofit partner master lease X number of units, and then they can move people in. And they're the landlord for that unit. And it's a great way to get people into housing very quickly. So that's something the mayor is looking at currently is this idea of master leasing as is, kind of an interim housing solution. Is there much of that in Metro Denver right now, master leasing? There isn't a ton. And that's where I'd really like to see this become one of the tools in our toolkit. I hope you'll tell me if this is a terrible question, Jamie. I will, Ryan. Okay, good. When you are a community that knows how to deal well with homelessness and can offer people homes and can offer people the sorts of services that will prevent them from getting on the streets again. Do you become a magnet then? Because if five communities around you or five states around you don't deal with it well, then do you become something of a draw? We now have data that show that 87% of the people experiencing homelessness are from right here in Colorado. So we know they're from here. They are experiencing homelessness in the communities where they last had a permanent residence. And so that's another one of the, I think, the misconceptions people have is that people are moving here, experiencing homelessness. They're moving here for that. That's not the case. That isn't the data that we see. Oh, this is really important for me to understand. And so we've talked about homelessness being visible and not so visible. Mm -hmm. But when it is visible, I am most likely looking at someone who was housed in my community, faced a hardship, Mm -hmm. and is no longer. That's correct. So that is what we see, is people who are in our community, they are from our community. 
This morning, Denver cleared away a homeless encampment for the first time since the new mayor took over. We have nowhere to go. But people feel realize we need a hand up, not a hand out. And some of us are working, some of us are trying to get a better life, some of us are some of us like it here. The mayor has promised to conduct these differently than in the past. Earlier this week, when I spoke with Jamie Reif of the Metro Denver Homeless Initiative, I asked her about this. Let's talk about this strategy Denver and Colorado Springs have taken to remove tent encampments. Mm-hmm. Here's a man we met in March named Charles Sager III, who is living outside in Denver. My friend, she just went down the street to go do something. Didn't even know that they were coming over and picking up at her tent real quick. But they took her whole tent, her wagon, her took everything she had, boom, 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 put it in the storage, boom, boom, bam, boom. And then left a note for us to give to her. It's just kind of rough because this band is like really like pounding down on us like we're the plague or something of the city. And it's not that, you know, we're trying to let them live, you know. It could be any day that anybody just, you know, in these apartments just, boom, ends up being homeless. Bam, now they're out here. The new mayor, Mike Johnston in Denver, keeps saying he'll do fewer of these so-called sweeps and he'll do it differently from how it's been done because he'll offer shelter and services before taking them down, he says. But is that a, a new approach, really? I mean, hasn't that been the norm? Yeah, I think it's different in the fact that what I'm personally helpful for is that there will be a significant amount of time for outreach teams to be going into the encampments, forming relationships. And Ryan, this is the most important part, is you have to build trust with these communities. It is incredibly important before you can ask, like, hey, do you want to go inside to shelter? Do you want to go to a tiny home? You know, we have a, a motel room. Would you like to go there? And these are actual communities. And a lot of times people don't want to go indoors because they are part of a, a little ecosystem that is an encampment. And so being able to offer everyone in the encampment a housing solution or some sort of transitional housing while we're looking for that longer term solution is incredibly important. So it's going to take more time than what we have currently been doing. And so that, you know, having three to four weeks, having that time to create relationships and then offering a solution and like, hey, we're going to move you toward housing, but we want to have a spot for you to go that's safe where you can lock your door so that when you come back from going down the street, your wagon isn't gone. So do you have any guarantee from this new administration in Denver in particular that it would afford you more time? To build relationships like that? I think so. So what I'm hearing the mayor say is that he's not going to be doing enforcement sweeps or enforcement. And what that allows, one of the things, Ryan, I hear regularly from our street outreach workers is they're working with someone, they're working really hard, they build a relationship, they might even have a housing resource, but then they go back to engage with the person and that entire community has been moved. And so with more of this encampment resolution, then what we're saying is we're going to allow people to stay as long as there's not any sort of public safety concern. And we're going to be working with them really diligently to find kind of a longer term solution. But of course, the tension is the business or the renter or the homeowner nearby who is intimidated and doesn't want to walk down a street that's filled with tents and may be concerned about cleanliness in the neighborhood, that person is pressing you to move quickly and to restore what they recognize their neighborhood to be. 
Yeah, and I think that's why we have to move really quickly to get uh, some of these temporary solutions. So I will say, for example, last week, um, the Denver Housing Authority approved a purchase of a large motel that's going to bring 194 non-congregate shelter rooms online very quickly. Non-congregate, so meaning people like their own room. Yeah, you're not going to be in a huge like warehouse or mm-hmm. someplace where you have hundreds of other people around you, which is really hard. You have a space to close and lock your door, keep things safe, take a shower. And in some of these units, they even have their own little kitchen. So we need to get things like that online very, very quickly. And does that make the convincing easier? A hundred percent. Uh-huh. A hundred percent. Then to say, say, we're going to put you on a cot in a convention yeah. center. Does anything good come out of these efforts to move people out of tent camps? Anything good. I think one of the things that is challenging are some of the health and you know hazards and things like that that do arise, which is why I think it's important to provide sanitation, trash removal, all of those things to be able to support people while they're having to stay there. But we can't just continue to say, you have to leave here, but you have no place to go. because. That we're just pushing people around the city, and it actually makes it much harder to solve for homelessness. But you're saying that, that cities should provide sanitation services for these encampments. Absolutely. While they're being convinced to move. Yeah, we absolutely. If people don't want to see trash, they don't want to see some of these other things, we really need sanitation. We need for people to be able to go to the bathroom in dignity. Even if Denver's mayor succeeds in housing a 1,000 people this year, Mm-hmm. That won't make the problem go away because I'm thinking of the reasons that you've given for people experiencing homelessness mm-hmm. and and the what was it, what is it you said the failure of multiple systems. Mm-hmm. So if housing continues to be super expensive, if there aren't enough mental health supports, if income inequality persists, won't this problem continue? Agreed. And that's absolutely why we have to look upstream, and it's going to take all of us. The reality is we have to do something about these other systems. And I am starting to see people starting to recognize that. Because for decades, it's really been like homelessness is an issue sitting over here by itself. And then here's all these other systems. And we're starting to see the integration and the understanding that if we are going to make a big reduction in homelessness, we have to shut off what we call the inflow. You know, when you say it takes all of us, Jamie, I, I'm not, I, I appreciated the voucher example, <laughs> yes. right? And you've said yes in my backyard. Yes. Say yes to affordable housing. I don't know what else it means when you say this takes all of us. I feel overwhelmed. I imagine you do. Uh-huh. I feel overwhelmed. Yeah. And I understand the issue. I think it's really about, again, not um, continuing to repeat the narrative that this is a personal choice mm. or that people are choosing to be homeless, but really starting to say, like, no, this is an issue that we're seeing across the country, particularly in high cost communities, that we need to be open to embracing different things that really address this challenge. We've spoken of Denver, we've spoken of Colorado Springs. What ideas do you see in other metro counties that are worth replicating? Yeah, so what we've done in this region, and we're the first in the nation to actually do this, and what we're doing is we're working specifically on veterans. And we're saying, let's get to a point where we know every veteran right now by name and talk about them every other week in a case conferencing. Let's sit around a table and say, like, okay, we know this person right now needs this resource. Who can bring it? And we have those conversations and they're person specific and we figure out what everyone needs versus just having kind of these global solutions. So as you look at different counties, different communities, 
there's different resources that they might have available. There's different availability with the rental market. So really what we're doing is sitting down and getting to the solutions for each person on something called a by name list. So we're knowing everyone by name who is a veteran. And why are veterans a good place to start? Yeah, great question. So number one, veterans tend to have more resources, right? We have the power of the VA Mm -hmm. and some of the federal resources behind us. And what we've been able to do, Ryan, is decrease veteran homelessness at three times the national rate. So is the idea to apply that to the community beyond veterans? Absolutely. So Uh that's a proof point. This is like a version one. We're trying this out. We're going to see all the flaws. And what we're also showing is what we can do when we have housing resources. We got news last week that people who work in a shelter called Urban Peak are trying to form a union. Mm -hmm. It's a first for a homeless service provider in recent memory. And uh, it makes me wonder, Jamie, if people who provide homeless services themselves are struggling. Like, what's the toll on the workforce right now? Yeah, you know, I was just talking about this earlier. And um, one of the things that we're seeing is, you know, we just went through a, a global pandemic for the last three years. And we're still in a sprint from that. And we're tired. And it's been really a really, really draining three years. And then you couple on top of that, a lot of our case managers, our service providers might have to have an extra job. They're fighting for clients. They may be fighting for themselves. 110%. So at at my organization, we have a, you know, like a rapid resolution fund. And we've actually seen providers and case managers having to, you know, look to access that fund through, you know, other supports to be able to make rent. And that is the reality is a lot of our service providers um, who particularly are on the front lines can't afford to live here. Do you sometimes want to blame the virus? And I don't say that to let anyone off the hook. But is this also just the reality of having lived through a pandemic? Yeah, I think this is definitely part of it. But the reality is, is there are a lot of other countries in this world that lived through a global pandemic and didn't have sharp increases in homelessness. Aha. Uh-huh. So when you look at it that way, yes, absolutely. Under our current systems and structures, this is a an outcome that we anticipated. That doesn't mean we need to keep our systems and structures the same. Right. And others have addressed it better. Absolutely. In many countries, you know, housing is seen as a human right. And like those are countries where you don't see people experiencing homelessness. They have things like mental health, substance use, health care. They have a living wage. Those are all things that contribute to people being able to remain stably housed. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. Jamie Reif is executive director of the Metro Denver Homeless Initiative. And Colorado Matters continues into this next half hour as we answer a listener question that's over the moon. Colorado Wonders is coming up. I'm Ryan Warner. You're with CPR News and KRCC. On the latest episode of Back From Broken, Colorado Public Radio's podcast about addiction and recovery, how drugs and alcohol derailed singer-songwriter P.B. Siebert's dreams. Johnny Cash and June Carter told me how much they love this song. Life coming at you fast. Right. I was so insecure that I had to drink. Find Back From Broken wherever you get your podcasts. Supported in part by Step Denver. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. 
In Fort Collins, there is Lady Moon Drive, and up by Red Feather Lakes, there's Lady Moon Trail. A listener noticed the names and sent us a question that sent CPR's Sarah Mulholland in search of an answer. And I thought, well, who on earth would this lady be in? Terry Marcotte has lived in Colorado for 30 years, and she really wants to know, who is this person? The name Lady Moon is kind of intriguing. It's like, is it the lady part or the moon part? You know, is is she, you know, a, a futurist, a, a, a gypsy type? You know, moon, that kind of conjures that idea. Lady Moon was an actual real live person that lived in the Fort Collins area around the turn of the 20th century. She was a very colorful character, and people definitely took notice when she came to town. She was a flashy dresser known for the giant plume in her hat. And she was a big animal lover. She owned racehorses. And people say you could hear her coming because of the huge pack of dogs that went with her everywhere. I went to the Fort Collins Museum of Discovery and met with archive assistant Sarah Fromm to learn about Catherine Lauder Grattan. Lady Moon. My job is to help people research questions they have about Fort Collins. She was a fixture in the area when Fort Collins was just a dusty little frontier town. Everyone would have known her or known of her. Um, She was certainly someone who was a big personality in a small town. Earl Miller took part in a series of oral histories in the 70s about the area's frontier days. Earl was born in 1903 in the old mining town of Elkhorn, which is just outside of Fort Collins. Earl knew Lady Moon well. Kate was a loud and spoken, profane, heart-baking woman, but she had a big heart. It's easy to see why people like to talk about her. Catherine Lauder came to the U.S. as an Irish orphan sometime in her teens. She ended up in Colorado and married a gold miner. Then she met Lord Cecil Moon, an English aristocrat who was traveling in the States. She got divorced, which was a very scandalous thing to do back then, and married Cecil Moon and became a lady, at least technically. I'm letting Henry Lucini and the writer look like a lady, me, but uh, that was her title. But her name's Catherine, so I call her Kate. <laughs> when Ruth Margrave was a kid, she sometimes stayed at Lady Moon's ranch near Red Feather Lakes, where her namesake trail is. In her oral history, she says she was fascinated by her. She came out, she got dinner herself, but she mm-hmm. got it in a lovely pink satin evening gown with a train on it. Somebody, some boy came to the door and told her that uh, a calf had gotten out of a certain corral. And um, old lady Moon flew out there with her pink train dragging behind her into the corral and caught the calf. For them. <laughs> with lots of newspaper clippings and scans. And Back at the archives, Sarah hands me a pile of newspaper clippings and other odds and ends about Lady Moon. Her marriage to Lord Moon didn't last, and her fortune didn't last either. Towards the end of her life, she was mostly known for drinking and bootlegging. It seems she was mostly shunned by polite society by the time she died in 1926. So why did the city choose to commemorate her? 
she might have been a complicated person and might have been an outsized personality for the area, but she's a pioneer woman. And she moved out here at the age of 18. Her parents died when she was 12. So she did a lot of hard work on her own. And it helps tell the full story of Fort Collins. I took a drive out to Lady Moon Park in Fort Collins. It's a peaceful little neighborhood spot with a small pond and a fountain. Zach McKee was there fishing. Did he know who Lady Moon was? I have no idea. I don't know what the road's for. I don't know what the park's for. But you knew it was called Lady Moon, but yes. did you ever wonder who's Lady Moon? You no. Know, I I probably should have. Um, no, I have. I'm, I'm not lifted up ever. I don't think that would bother Catherine Lauder. I do think she'd be pleased. She's still called a lady. I'm Sarah Mulholland, CPR News. What do you wonder about when it comes to Colorado? Send us your question through CPR.org slash Colorado Wonders. Before we dive into this next story, we need to get the potty humor out of the way. Because usually when I tell people I sleep to the sound of brown noise, they chuckle, thinking of a South Park episode, maybe this is a Colorado thing, in which a noise plays that makes people, well, void their bowels. You guys, we found it. We found it, you guys. Calm down, Cartman. You found what? The brown noise. Kenny and me found the brown noise. Here, look, look, look. Okay, let's see Okay. 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 Ready, Kenny? Well, thanks, Cartman, but that is not the brown noise we'll be talking about. Brown noise is kind of like white noise, but I find it less stressful, more conducive to sleep. Every night as I crawl into bed, I ask my smart speaker to play it. Turn on brown noise. the only one keyed into brown noise. There are YouTube videos that play it for hours on end. The sound has caught on among people with ADHD who find it helps them focus. So let's talk about it with Professor Dan Burlow from the School of Pharmacy at Regis University in Denver. And thanks for being with us. Thank you so much. I think white noise is better known, Dan, but there's also pink and blue noise. So what, sound is on a spectrum like a rainbow? What's the deal here? Uh, Not quite. So I I actually sleep to pink noise. Uh, The the color is just more for an easy way for us to talk about them. But in reality, they're all what we call full frequency sounds or broadband sounds, where all the sounds that people can hear are played sort of at the same time. And white noise, they're all played at the same volume. Uh, Unfortunately, because our ear hears high frequency sounds louder, White noise has kind of a high-pitched hiss to it. Mm. And so pink noise was the first sort of slight adjustment where they played the high-frequency sounds a little quieter. It became more pleasant. People like it more. Because we are so attuned to those. Yeah. And then brown noise, they really adjusted it to the maximum where they applied sort of a, it's called a Brownian distribution to it. So uh, they play the low frequency sounds very loudly and the high frequency sounds very quietly. And so instead of having that high pitched hiss, you have more of that low rumbling thunder, oceans, airplane crashing, airplane. Like I hear a jet, you know, like I'm on the inside of a jet when I'm playing. Yeah, yeah. And, And one of the reasons why I think brown noise has caught on 
for a variety of reasons, but the biggest reason is that it's just really pleasant to hear. We don't, as humans, we don't really like high-pitched sounds. And blue noise is another noise that you mentioned where the high-frequency sounds are played louder. It's very unpleasant for most people. Oh, I see. It's beyond white noise in that way. Yeah. Well, this is helpful because it helps me understand why white noise has always turned me off. Uh, But thus the emergence, then, of pink, which you use. Why don't we listen to some pink noise? So you sleep to that each night? I do, yeah. So um, I have two kids, age four and six, and since they were infants, we played white noise in their room, and we had a little baby monitor. And so I would hear their white noise in their room until they you know, no longer needed a baby monitor. And I got hooked on it. And so instead of listening to white noise, I thought pink noise sounded best. So every night, my wife and I use our smart speaker and we play pink noise. Is this your introduction to the field? Like how does someone in the School of Pharmacy wind up researching various kinds of noise? Yeah, so that's a great question. So my background is neuroscience. And so I came at it from the ADHD angle. I teach our ADHD unit. I'm very interested in the brain and how the brains of children and adults with ADHD are different. And one of the things in my sort of interest was a student project that I worked on with a student about non-pharmacological interventions for ADHD. Hmm. Which what would increase focus? Yeah. So the studies have only been done on white noise, nothing on any of the other colored noises. But uh, ADHD children have shown improvements in reading speed, writing speed, impulsivity, what they call vigilance, where they're you know, staying on a task they don't want to do. Mm-hmm. And uh, the results are pretty good uh, with white noise. And I, I think you'd probably find something similar with brown noise. The one caveat is that the noise that they use for these studies is pretty loud. It's between 65 and 80 decibels, which is would be more like a hairdryer right in your ear. Oh, uh, well, that sounds unpleasant. Yeah, a little bit less pleasant than just having it at night. But I imagine there is some risk to playing any noise too loudly. That's probably the downside here. Yeah, that's well said. Uh, I think most people say 80 decibels would be the upper limit that you'd want to listen to for an extended period of time. Most people, when they listen to it for pleasure, it's way lower than that. Mm-hmm. Uh, y- you do run a slight risk of that. But in most cases, listening to whatever noise for focus, attention, sleep is totally safe. Now, it strikes me that there could be several reasons that it works. One is just the masking effect. So I live on a fairly busy street in Denver, and there's a part of me that wonders... Is this working because it is drowning out, you know, clamoring neighbors and sirens and thumping in car speakers that pass by my place? Yeah. So the auditory masking that you're mentioning is one of the main reasons why people use it for sleep. Some people will use white noise or brown noise when they're studying in a coffee shop just to drown out the conversations of people around them. And that's one mechanism by which people think it's working, sort of just stopping distractive sounds. And Chris, I think of, you know, AirPods, for instance, a lot of headsets, they create that on purpose to shut out the world a little bit. So that that effect makes sense to me. What are some other reasons that this might work in people with ADHD? Yeah, so uh, there's a lot of theories out there. I don't think there's a lot of really hard evidence, but one thought is that people with ADHD 
their dopamine release in their brain is a little bit different than a neurotypical person. A neurotypical person has a little bit of dopamine that's released all the time from neurons in their brain. It's called a tonic release. I like to call it the dopamine trickle. We just mm. sort of have it all the time. It helps us maintain focus and attention. And it also helps us limit the amount of dopamine release when we're excited or stimulated. And people with ADHD don't really have that dopamine trickle. So they have a hard time f focusing on things. But then when they're stimulated, they get really, really distracted easily. Again, hyperactivity, um, other symptoms like that. And so it's thought that the white noise or brown noise creates a little bit of stimulation that sort of mimics that tonic dopamine. Oh, interesting. It's a sonic version of that drip. Yeah, yeah. Huh. So... They have looked at study. I mean, studies have looked at is the dopamine release different in people when they're listening to white noise? Right. And they haven't been able to find that. So it's probably not quite as simple as that. Okay. So but, it's not that it's stimulating that, but it might be mimicking it. Yep, exactly. And so the thought is perhaps just having that sort of low level stimulation creates some situation in the brain that mimics that sort of basic dopamine release. If there are parents listening who have children with ADHD or folks listening themselves with ADHD, would you encourage them simply to experiment with this? You know, there are apps that generate these sounds. It's actually how I discovered brown noise was that I could choose a number from the spectrum. And, you know, you, I mentioned YouTube, for instance. Would you encourage experimentation in families? Yeah. So I, mean, I, I think this is a supplement for traditional therapy for ADHD. I certainly wouldn't say, do not see a doctor, do not see mm. uh, um, medical help for ADHD because it's a serious condition. But if parents are looking for something to augment whatever therapies they're using, there's very little downside. You know, the, the evidence is not strong enough that I would say, I guarantee this is going to work. Mm -hmm. But uh, the downside is pretty limited. It's, it's free or relatively free. It's non-medication. And so my son has ADHD and we have tried brown noise with him. Uh, okay. So you're suggesting this what? To start with sleep? To start with studying? What are the environments where I might introduce this? Uh, certainly if people are having difficulty sleeping because of ambulances driving by or I live in Louisville, there's a train that comes by that blows the horn. Mm. And so in that context, I would say anything during sleep, white noise, brown noise, whatever you think is most pleasant is great. Uh, in terms of focus and attention, Anybody can see benefit from this. Uh, when I'm studying at a coffee shop, I like to have uh, white noise or pink noise playing, and it helps quite a bit. So I don't think there's a wrong way to go about it. Again, keeping in mind that uh, if it doesn't work, you can try something else. And if it does work, that's terrific. You know, 50 years ago, an album called Songs of the Humpback Whale became a surprise hit. It's actually the most popular nature recording in history. <laughs> Do you remember people listening to that, Dan? So I, I heard it the, I, on NPR. They just did an a anniversary episode of yeah. it. I actually find the sound of humpback whales to be a little bit eerie and disquieting. I, I, don't, <laughs> I don't find it very relaxing. I suppose, though, it's all in service of the same thing, which is what? A sound that brings you out of perhaps your anxious mind. Um, is it related to meditation? It certainly could be. I know that the brown noise phenomenon really was augmented this summer when an ADHD advocate on TikTok 
listened to Brown Noise for the first time and and just basically said her brain was quiet for the first time in her entire life. Mm-hmm. Uh, this resonated with a lot of a lot of adults with ADHD, especially adults who don't find that medication is the right fit for them, or at least not uh, as as monotherapy. And so. A lot of people really said, this This helps me. I can focus. I can finally pay attention. And right now, we are actually in a, a medication shortage for ADHD meds. People who take Adderall sometimes are, are being unable to get their prescriptions filled. Uh, this is hopefully a short-term thing, a couple of months. But still, for people who rely on this medication, oftentimes they're looking for anything they can find. So mm. brown noise might be a possible solution or at least a bridge until they can get their medication. I'd like to share a feeling I have, and that's when my brown noise turns off. Dan, it actually leaves me feeling a bit sad or like vulnerable. I guess I miss it when it's not playing. And maybe that's Pavlovian, right? Just that I associate the end of it with having to leave bed and face the world and be an adult again. Uh, But is it possible that my system is craving it? After it ends? Uh, I mean, they always say never use one of your favorite songs as an alarm in the morning. Yeah. And I think you're right. Is I think when you wake up, oftentimes the end of the brown noise sort of signifies the start of the day. I can say that if you ever go to a hotel and try to sleep without brown noise, you might find it significantly more difficult just because it's an expectation your brain has yeah. to relax. That's we're, right. As humans, we're very context dependent. And so... You know, sleep hygiene says you shouldn't use any screens in your bedroom. Your bed should only be for sleeping. And so our brains, when we hear that brown noise, that might actually sort of signal to our brain, it's time to relax, it's time to sleep. That's interesting about hotels because I have had those occasions where I'm in a hotel. I have the app, but I'm not keen on having my... AirPods in the entire night. So then what I wind up doing, and this is completely energy inefficient, I shouldn't be admitting this, is I'll turn on the fan connected to the air conditioning just to create that kind of noise because I'm without my smart speaker. But I think you're right to suggest that people create some consistency when they're in different settings. Yeah. So some advice is if you have a smartphone or you have a laptop, they actually have eight and 10 hour brown noise loops that are just black screen. And so you don't waste your laptop battery or electricity too much and you can listen to it. One caveat is that I've explored probably maybe a dozen or so of the white noise, brown noise, pink noise, YouTube videos. And oftentimes what they say they are is not actually what they are. So I I saw a white noise video that was very clearly brown noise. I saw a pink noise video that was also very clearly brown noise. Oh, okay. And so you can't necessarily rely on what the YouTube video says it is. Um, Once you've heard, and now your listeners will have heard what white noise, brown noise, and pink noise are, hopefully you can identify it better. Yeah, well, based on partly your reaction to it, I suppose. Uh, I know that there are folks who use Spotify for this, and um, small Bluetooth speakers on the road. Dan, thank you for being with us. Thank you so much. Dan Burlow is on faculty at the Regis University School of Pharmacy in Denver. His research interests range from cannabis to ADHD to dementia. We spoke in December. Finally today, a new home for a music institution. (laughs) 
Jazzle, the jazz club, has just reopened at the Denver Performing Arts Complex, specifically that big glassy space along 14th downtown. Marketing director Kelly Dawkins described the digs for our colleagues at Denverite. The stage is front and center. The seating is around three of the four sides. So everyone will have a different preferred angle that they like. There are just no fixtures or anything that get between you and the artist, and it truly creates an incredibly intimate experience between the audience and the artist. It's almost like the audience is part of the performance because it's so intimate. In its new home, Dazzle will incorporate another beloved jazz club, El Chapultepec, closed in the pandemic after 87 years. A real gut punch. And so special late-set jams will keep the legacy of the peck alive. Dazzle's reopening features Grammy-nominated singer-songwriter Renee Marie. I can see there's going to be some singing and drumming, dancing and humming. Come on, everybody, get on the floor and dance like you never danced before. It's in the air, it's everywhere. Come share the joy, the Hey! And that is Colorado Matters for today, with thanks to a team that dazzles. Tyler Bender. Carl Bielek. Anthony Cotton. Pete Kramer. Andrea Dukakis. Rachel Estabrook. Michelle Fulcher. Matt Hers. Tom Hess. Michael Hughes. Chris Ketchum. Pedro Lumbraño. Shane Rumsey. Chandra Thomas-Woodfield. And I'm Ryan Warner. You're with CPR News and KRCC. KRCC.